Hello and welcome to the Cigar Cast, your weekly one-stop shop for all things cigar-related, including industry news, reviews, and everything in between. We are recording live from Crown Cigars and Nails here in beautiful Brentwood, Tennessee. I'm the Smokemaster General, Trey Dedman, and I'm joined this time by two gentlemen, one of whom is already regretting saying yes to joining us tonight, uh, but my longtime co-host, Shane Reeves. You know, I was thinking today, as I was going through and getting material together, there was stuff about, there was stuff about books and all that coming up. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, we have an author in the shop, and we haven't had a guest in a while, so I did ask Mr. Drescher to join us today. Longtime and- friend of the show. Good to have you back, sir. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, he went full NPR voice. That yeah. was great. Well, he made the pilgrimage last night all the way to Spring Hill to play in the monster game. Oh. Did not win a hand. <laughs> it's very I, difficult that, to do, but I pulled it off. That's why I stopped playing poker. Very, very rarely do I feel bad when I put somebody out up to and including my wife. Right. But I did feel a little bad last night when I put Jay out. <laughs> I, was a, I was a little bit remorseful. Well, then Glenda gave me a second chance, and I, I think I, I may have won one hand, but I finally got a flush. That's when you put me out the second time, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, no, I think you got put out at the other table. I did. And uh, the first time you had a straight and I had a full house. Or you may have had a flush. Anyway. Anyway, uh, for, the, <laughs> for those of us who aren't degenerate gamblers and just degenerate cigar smokers. Hey, we're keeping up with the Fantasy Poker League. <laughs> uh, yeah, I understand. You know. I understand. Well, so we've talked about the Monster Game specifically on the show last couple of weeks because you you got to have two iterations this year, which is kind of unique. And uh, so we're in for a little bit of a treat in our cigars this week. Yeah, so this week I decided to break out a box of the Monster Mash. You know, because we threw out all the rigmarole, I ended up with two boxes of Monster Mash. And I said, everybody should smoke a Monster Mash tonight. And also, I, I chose the wolf for myself. I got recommendation from a friend. He had smoked one of the wolves, and he said this was a man's cigar. Okay. And he's a veteran cigar smoker. And he said this was very, very strong. It's listed on the website as medium full. It's an Ecuadorian Sumatra wrapper with Nicaraguan binder and filler. All right. So I'm interested to fire it up and actually see what it's like. And then I chose Mr. Drescher's cigar for him tonight. And I chose for him the Kruger. And now the Kruger is actually one I won a box of. The one monster game I've won in my life, I won the Kruger. And the Kruger's a San Andreas wrapper over Nicaraguan binder and filler. And I remember it being very good one year after it was made. Yeah, I think I've only ever had two monster cigars prior to this that was one of them i think the bride was the other one yeah and i remember the kruger being quite good yeah so i thought i would i would go ahead and take the stress off of mr drescher thank you uh so my selection out of the box was based on appearance alone nice connecticut broadleaf toothy wrapper that i could see through the cellophane and i said yeah that's the one for me tonight this is the jason so it's a Connecticut broadleaf wrapper over Nicaraguan binder and filler. Like all the monsters, it comes in one size, seven and a half by 52. And I mean, just, just looking at this cigar, it looks like me. And it really looks like Pete Johnson too. I mean, it looks, this looks like the Tatawahe that made the name for them. One of the cool things that they do with the monsters is they do kind of let the shape of the cigar... For instance, the wolf has a shaggy foot. Right. Appropriately so. The Frank is box-pressed. Right, is box-pressed. They, they kind of do that. Now, my only complaint is, 
Would it cost too much to maybe put a label around the individual cigar? That, that, that identifies them? That identifies which one it is. Because it's kind of like, you know that box of candy? Yeah. That, they, that somebody always gives you? Whitman sampler. That's it. The Whitman sampler. And for some reason, I always grab the one full of toothpaste. Right. And, I'll, and so there's a legend on the back, and you have to or lay it Or the cherry in. cough syrup. Oh, that's That's it. the that's one it. I always end up hitting. Yeah, they're, they're the worst. So I don't know why they decided to do that for the Monster Mash, but I just, I just think they could have printed a label that said Wolf and Frank on it pretty cheap and all as they were going to do it. But anyway, all right. So, Mr. Drescher, before we get started talking about cigars, anything exciting in your life? How much weight are you down overall since your oh, great I don't start know. of losing weight? It's been almost two years. Uh, about 30 pounds. Wow. Give or take. I'm under 200, which is kind of my goal. All of it lost in the gym just about, too, right? Well, I don't drink anymore. That's one That of helps. Those. Yeah, just trying to preserve what's left of me. I'll be 64 next week. Yeah, so you kind of next week already, your birthday? Yeah, yeah. November 3rd. Oh, wow. And now, did you ever feel cheated being born in November because Christmas was so close, or did they keep it separate for you? No, but I can't tell you how many times my birthday's fallen on Election Day. Oh, so, I bet. And, you know, depending on which way you lean, it's either a great day or not so great. <laughs> More often than not, not so great. <laughs> Regardless of which way you lean. Yeah. If you live long enough, it's about 50-50. Yeah. Well, I've always said I hope to live long enough to vote for somebody that I would actually want to be president, not just the lesser of two evils. But anyway. Anyway, let's talk about a new cigar. So, new cigar. This is from Half Wheel. JR Cigar releasing exclusive Herrera Esteli for the 50th anniversary. So, I'm curious how you feel about this because I know you love the Herrera Esteli. But I also know that you're not usually a huge fan of doing special releases for these big ultra retailers. Well,. I'm always going to be more in favor of supporting my local brick and mortar than I am a online retailer such as JR. But JR does have some actual brick and mortar shops. Mm-hmm. None around here, but they do. Um, they've been in business for 50 years. I'm going to give them a pass. Okay. I think anything past 28 and a half gets a pass. Yeah, because you're, you're pre-internet. So even though they do most of their business online now, obviously they were doing it before then. Well, and I do like that it's a 7x48 Churchill with an Ecuadorian Habano wrapper, Honduran binder, and fillers from Nicaragua and Honduras. And let me just say, nobody handles Honduran like Willie. Yeah. Willie Herrera knows how to handle Honduran. I don't know if he's married to one. I don't know what exactly, <laughs> why he's so good at handling Honduran, but he can handle Honduran tobacco like no one else. It, I would imagine it has to be his palate. You know, it, it's distinctive. You can really tell when you, I mean, anytime you pick up a Rocky Patel, you, you can taste the Honduran in it. And so I think there just must be something about his palate that really lends itself. Yeah, it, mu- it must be. And he's a master blender. I right. mean, he's got a palate that the rest of us probably couldn't comprehend. And I'll, but, you know, it's kind of like I tell people, my pet peeve is when people come into my office and they say, I'm just not good at visualizing. Hey, nobody was born able to visualize. It's a skill you acquire. And I'll give them steps to acquire that skill. You know, measure the rooms in your house. Measure your grandmother's antique hutch. Measure your bed. 
the average person thinks their master, their king size bed is ten by twenty five. Right. And they think they could land a helicopter on their bed, and it's actually just shade over six foot long and barely six foot wide. Right. It's a you know, and I feel when some people tell me, Jay, I'm not aiming this at you, <laughs> but. When some people say, well, I just don't taste the things and all that, you have to train your palate. It's mm-hmm. a skill. It's a skill you must seek with which to acquire. Well, one way to do that would be to be more mindful of what you're doing when you're smoking. Pay attention to what it is, what's in it. Just just concentrate. Focus. Just focus more. Don't just smoke it. Think about it while you're smoking it. I went back... And listen to our first episode a couple of weeks ago, which, for those of you listening at home, I don't recommend it. Uh, <laughs> we've come a long way in four and a half years. and But one of the things we talked about, as we've talked about so many on the shows, but that that's why it's top of mind, is for, for Shane, the cigar as the destination is something that occurs far more often than it does for me. And I think... You know, as especially as we've gone through this this experiment we call a podcast, it, it's been interesting to listen to the way my palate has changed now that I have an opportunity each week to sit down and legitimately focus on the cigar and and think about it as not just a way to pass the time between truck stops. Yeah, it's you know, for me, smoking has always been a pleasure, not a habit. And, I'll, and if I don't have time to smoke a cigar, I don't smoke a cigar. I never shoehorn one in. You know, yesterday morning I had a meeting at 9 o'clock. I just didn't smoke. I just said, okay, yeah. I don't have the time today to sit down and smoke my morning cigar the way I like to smoke it with my Labrador. So I'm not going to do it. And also that's just kind of, I think it, that's part of it. Are you trying to quit saying and all? I am trying to quit saying and all. Do you want me to raise my hands or wave or anything? Well, oh, please I, I do. Gonna, I was going to get you a bell. Yeah. Well, that'll be picked up by the mics. Well, every time I say end, I'll just ding. <laughs> I'll just wave my arm. I've been trying for four and a half years to break him of that habit. If you can do it in one podcast, I'll be seriously impressed. I'm going to start calling you Pavlov. Well, I don't want to be annoying <laughs> even when I am, but you mentioned this, Shane, the other day in conversation. And so when you said it a few times earlier, I was reminded of that conversation we had. I'm a, I'm a trial lawyer, so I focus on people who are good public speakers and those that are not, and it, that's an art. And it's a, to some degree, it's a lost art. You'll see it when people make speeches. Um, the really good ones are rare. So when somebody says, uh, ah, uh, whatever, they don't, they're not aware of it. If you, if you bring it to their attention... They can, they can correct it. So it's it's so, oh sorry it it's interesting you bring that up because I was listening to Bob Saget has a podcast because everybody has a podcast sure and Bob Saget is a man who has made a living public speaking whether it's reciting lines or doing stand up that is and. On his podcast, when he's having a natural conversation, it's amazing how many times he says, um, and that was one of the first things I picked up on. And it's just, it's like you say, it's one of those things that we had to be really focused on early on. And I still do it more than I would like, but I'm now way more conscious of it than I used to be. 
Well, you have to, like anything, you have to pay attention to it. Most of the time when a speaker has a habit like that, they don't hear it. Right. They're not aware of it. It just becomes a habit. Well, I'm also, we're also, the number one thing said on this podcast by Trey and I both, it's interesting. That's our filler for I don't have anything further. Yeah, we start, we actually start booting up conversations with, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. So it's interesting and and all, the two top things said on this podcast. All right. I'll wave my arm on the and all. I'll let the other one go. Okay. That sounds like a plan. (laughs) So this week, the third week in October, the famous Tennessee versus Alabama game. Is it weird that I had no idea that was this weekend? No, you're not a great big football guy. I'm, I'm not, and less so this year just because I'm so focused on other things. Well, my wife. Like Braves in the World Series. Yeah, there's that. And I'll, actually, they looked very good last they night. They looked very good. I actually stayed up. <laughs> I actually stayed up past 10 o'clock for the first time, and I can't tell you how long last night to watch the end of the game. What was the score? 6-1. Because it was on when we were having the poker game. Which, by the way, I want everyone listening to know that I did win the monster game last week. He did. I will say that Fair and square. Yeah, so it would have just been greedy if you won again last night. Actually, I wondered if I would be welcome at the poker table having won (laughs) last week, but I saw that the other gentleman who won last week was also there. Dan. You're always welcome at the poker table. Uh, That's why I love you, Shane. So, third week of October, historically, is University of Tennessee versus Alabama football game. Um, I wonder how long, how far this stretches. It's a big deal around here. Yeah, it is. And it, it goes back, well, at least as far as the 60s as a rivalry. I'm sure far, far further back than that even. I think it always, it comes down to, um, you know, locally, two counties that are side by side will have a rivalry. Right. Regardless of whether or not they're evenly matched. Yeah. Murray and Williamson. Right. Wayne County and Waynesboro. You know, Collinwood and Waynesboro. Everybody has a rivalry. It's usually it's usually geographical. So the fact that Tennessee and Alabama share a border, I guess that's a big part of it. Oh, I'm sure. Absolutely. But there is a famous cigar tradition. I didn't know that you didn't know about the – that Jay didn't know about the Alabama-Tennessee cigar tradition. I'm all ears, baby. So it was actually started in 1961 when um, the late Jim Goosetree, Longtime Alabama athletic trainer who graduated from Tennessee. Alabama beat Tennessee since 1954, 7 7, tie in 59. So when the Alabama won 34 3, and this was when they played at Birmingham's Legion Field, this is before Tuscaloosa, they wanted to celebrate and they all smoked cigars. So Saturday night, we were sitting there watching the game, and as soon as it looked like Alabama was going to win, the cigars started being lit up in the stands. The stands looked like they were on fire. The amount of cigar smoke in this stadium was unreal. And um, R&R Sales actually sells them. LFD makes an Alabama versus Tennessee football cigar. Perdomo makes an Alabama-Tennessee football cigar. So it's, it's kind of big business. Sure it would be, given the number of people that put their butts in seats. Yeah, just the casual smokers, because these weren't the standard cigar smokers that we see lighting these cigars. And every year at the podcast this time, we always talk about some of the pictures of people smoking the cigars, and they have them in their mouth backwards, and they have the bands ripped off, and they still got them in the cellophane and all that. 
So we've decided instead of doing that this year, I just wanted to touch on that, that it was really, really exciting. Is that like when if you live in Tuscaloosa but you're not at the game, is that a bit like when they elect a new pope as soon as you just see all of the cigar smoke coming out of Bear Bryant Stadium? Well, but if Tennessee won, ten, supposedly Tennessee would light up their cigars. But I think... Okay, you know the game's over and to avoid the roads around the university. How about that? Yeah. I think everybody should be able to light up a cigar at the end of that game. Either you're celebrating your victory or you're being a good sport and congratulating the other team on their victory, which for the past, since Nick Saban got to Alabama, there's not really been any competition. No, there really hasn't. They store those cigars in humidors for the next game, the next game, the next game, the next game. (laughs) By the time Tennessee finally wins again, there'll be 75-year-old cigars. Actually, (laughs) ouch. I didn't tell you that I adopted Tennessee as my official college team, did I? No, you didn't. If you look out there at the front of my truck. I noticed that. I wasn't sure it was your truck when we met up last week because I saw the Tennessee plate on the front. Well, I I started watching football with the guys on Saturdays, and you kind of have to— Who are largely Bama fans, by the way. Largely Bama fans. There's one very stalwart Tennessee fan. And um, I didn't want—it's me. Right. I don't want to be part of any club that would have me as a member. So becoming an Alabama fan at this stage. It's bandwagon. Yeah, when they're the the powerhouse. So Tennessee wins enough that That I can still enjoy it, but they lose enough that I don't feel like I'm bandwagoning. That's fair. No, see, I grew up in a UT household, so that's always been. But, I mean, for authenticity's sake, let's face it, it's going to be a while before they beat Alabama again. Well, I did have to lay down the law with my wife and the other UT graduates there that I would no longer wear my UT pullover to yard sales. Because when I yard sell, I'm like a ninja man. I want to get in, make the kill, get out. And that bright orange really upsets the balance of that. Not only that, the old lady who's selling the 280 pieces of glassware that there's no way in the world I would ever buy, Oh, I remember when me and my husband would go to Neyland Stadium before he died, and you have to sit there and reminisce for five valuable minutes of yard selling. And she's old enough that she means when Neyland died, not her husband. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Rest in peace, General. And you end up, I don't like to draw attention to myself while yard selling, so I did lay down the law. Hey, folks, I will support UT, but I will not wear the sweatshirt to yard sales anymore. It interferes with the process. Shane, is there a sanction when they light cigars at the game? Yes. Actually, Alabama self-reports and Tennessee self-reports and pays a $100,000 fine to the NCAA. Now, some listeners probably going to look that up and say, well, it's actually $123,248. You know, I don't like think that. we have that pedantic a, a listenership. You don't think we, Alex, we're talking to you. Um, we actually don't think Hey, we, Alex is, you're not allowed to talk bad about Alex this week. Oh, okay. Did he do you a favor? We, he did. And um, I wasn't necessarily going to bring this up on the show, but since you do, um, we had the baby shower this weekend. And all of the stuff was just kind of sent to my parents' house, you know, because we don't really have an address right now. And... There was one package that we opened that we that didn't have a tag in it, didn't have a, a note like so many things from Amazon that say who it's from. And so it wasn't until a little bit later that night that we actually went through the Amazon registry. And sure enough, 
Alex sent us something for the baby, and you, that just meant the absolute world to me. You would have been remiss not to have mentioned that on the podcast. My well, friend. he's still getting a handwritten thank you note, but I just thought that was such such an incredible gesture. It's very and thoughtful. It really it's very thoughtful. Our listeners are few but loyal. Exactly. <laughs> I would rather have three really solids as two thousand. You know, no, I wouldn't. I'd rather have two thousand. <laughs> <laughs> as long as the three really loyal ones stick around. But moving forward... Considering I'm married to one of them, that's really... <laughs> I really hope that one sticks around. So, Cutting Edge. I've, I've been trying to run that one off for a long time. She's still hanging in there. So, Cutting Edge news here at the Cigar Cast. We like to stay, you know, abreast of the latest developments. From the Traverse City Royal Record Eagle. Did I mispronounce it again? Yes, Traverse City. Traverse City. Yeah. Why is there an SE on it if it's Traverse City? It's just like Lafayette, Tennessee, or Santa Fe. It's it, it it's not pronounced like it's spelled because that's the way they decided they wanted to do it. Cairo. It's K- hilarious. Cairo, yeah. Illinois. It's hilarious when they say Norfolk on NCIS because I think that the um, the cable companies are going to call and find them. Right. Because Norfolk is not pronounced Norfolk by by most people, people. that live there. Yeah, so, but L is silent. News from 110 years ago, 10-23-21. So this is the top news stories from Traverse City, Michigan. Back then it was called Traverse. From Traverse City, (laughs) Michigan. Um, Dating back 100 years. 110 years. So this would be 2011, or 1911. 1911. Good year for guns. I miss miss the old-timey newspaper Back in those days when everybody read the newspaper. Right. And and you would get minutia like this as if it were breaking news. Yeah, and I'm not go- I'm not gonna hit them all, but there's two that I have to hit. The opening season for deer hunting began yesterday, and numerous hunters from the city and vicinity have already gone and are arranging their expeditions. <laughs> I like that they announced the deer opening a deer season in the the newspaper. The other one, would you like to read it, Trey? Yeah, Ed Ed Maderi, superintendent of the Humidor Regulator Regulator Company's factory in the city, will leave for Detroit tomorrow to install 25 humidors. They will be placed in cigar cases of the largest hotels and cigar stores in Detroit. The humidor is the latest device for equalizing the temperature of a cigar case and maintaining a moisture that prevents the cigars from getting too dry. It is conceded that this is the best device ever invented and its operation is perfect. I don't think this could be considered the best device ever invented. (laughs) (laughs) But I appreciate the hubris. I'm just thinking maybe some dental instrument, perhaps the artificial heart valve, you know. Artificial heart valve wasn't invented by then. Well, okay. So you're saying the best invention today. Well, what about sliced bread? Wasn't invented yet. When was sliced bread invented? 19... 50-something. He's totally making that up, no, Jay. There's no sliced, way he realizes sliced that. Bread I think is, he's right. I think he's right. Sliced bread is younger than Betty White. No kidding. Everything's yeah. younger than Betty White. <laughs> Even the humidor might be younger than Betty White. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting that way back then, they still recognized the need to keep their cigars at the proper temperature and humidity right. for flavor and texture and everything else. Yeah. So I, I just thought that was really cool. No machine designed by man operates perfectly. So that's a little stretch. I heard about a device once that you couldn't wear out because it was self-lubricating. I'm but afraid to ask. <laughs> Trey knows that old joke. 
<laughs> I'll tell you. It's, I'll tell it's you good that it's time break. for us to step away for a break. <laughs> I'll tell you during the break. Hey, before we go, I do have to. I do have to acknowledge. I think that's this. very unfair to the fans. CC Cheshire caught a squirrel two days ago, which considered by local sportsmen who have seen it to be either a freak of nature or an unknown specimen of the squirrel family. It has pink eyes, and its color is very similar to a squirrel. Was this just an albino squirrel somebody caught? And they didn't know about it. When was albinoism invented? Yeah, I'll look that up on the break while you're telling him a dirty joke. <laughs> okay. And, uh, well, let's talk about our cigar for just a second before we dive on. See, I didn't even recognize I did it that time. I didn't even hear that one. Yeah, tra- Trey's become immune. It's the only reason I'm here. The Wolf is excellent. Probably the best monster I've smoked. The Jason is the best monster I've smoked. Oh. How do you like the Kruger? You've been, you've been puffing a lot of monsters since you won. No, I haven't. I gave one to your wife. Um, you know, I won the monster game about five years ago, and I still have some. Uh, can't tell you what it is. Cause Michael. This, oh, is it? Yeah. I, was I told, remember because you beat me for it. Well, I was told to keep it and for a year, and I've, I've still got three left. Um, that's that's some I, self-control. Am I supposed to keep the monsters that I won last week in the humidor for a year before I smoke them? I, w- I would say it doesn't seem like it's it necessary. It doesn't seem like it. So, the reason for that is the monsters historically have tasted a little young and needed about a year to chill out. But these seem to be aged fine. Yeah, this I'm, is this, you say I got the what one now? I got the, the Kruger. Kruger. Yeah, I'm enjoying it. I'm trying not to smoke it too fast. Well, when we come back from the break, I want to talk about the most haunted cigar bar in America. This really tickles me. Ooh. Pink. Everybody knows I love Halloween. And Ooh. for all the listeners out there, this is the last week you will have to hear me talk about <laughs> Halloween <laughs> until September of next year. Halloween, Halloween is two days after this airs, and then we're done. Absolutely. For a year. So we'll be back. Back to the Cigar Cast. This is one of your hosts, Shane, sitting across from the man who wrote a book about reverse psychology called Don't Buy This, Mr. Trey Denman. <laughs> oh, that would sell so fast. Well, you know, in this day of modern era, any any schmuck can write a book. Oh, hey, Jay, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> Our guest, well, Jay Drescher. Wow. <laughs> hey, I got a twofer on that one, man. Nice. Just, just took an even spray across that side of the table. <laughs> I've always said if you wanted to make a million overnight, all you have to do is write a diet book and get someone like a D-list celebrity to to talk about it. Well, that's the famous story Tom Arnold tells that Nutrisystem offered him and Roseanne like a million dollars each to lose weight, and that was when she nearly stabbed him. Right. They were both trying to lose weight on Nutrisystem, and homicidal rage was one of the side effects. Maybe I could write a pirate diet pirate diet book it's hard to say <laughs> bulgur wheat and lemons the t- the pirate diet hey they've written the caveman diet the, there's never, a whole documentary about the christian diet you've never seen a fat almost said the f word you've never seen a fat <laughs> pirate <laughs> so from, that's that's the subtitle i like it the pirate diet you've never seen a fat pirate absolutely i'm i'm in i'll give you a cut from Spectrum News, I'd rather just lose the weight. <laughs> Whatever you like. From Spectrum News 1, they're on your side, in Milwaukee. Inside America's most haunted cigar bar that stands tall here in Wisconsin. 
This is by Savannah Tomei, which is a great author name. Yeah. I don't know if that's a pen name or a real name, but Savannah Tomei, that is a great author name. <laughs> and uh, a Milwaukee spot known as America's most haunted cigar bar and gets to play that up. Shaker Cigar Bar in Milwaukee's Walker's Point. The building was built in 1894 as a cooperage for Schlitz Brewing. Cooperage. Okay, how's that not a cooperage? It's it's a cooper is someone who makes barrels. So do you cooperate, or well, do you cooperate? Well, you you recuperate. Okay, but are you have you ever said I'm cooperated? I don't need to recuperate. <laughs> no, but it's from Cooper. It's where they made barrels for the Schlitz Brewing factory. As a cooperage for the Schlitz Brewing, and I always get a little nervous saying Schlitz in plot company. As you should. And you can go so and many I'll ways. Wrong. Just said that too. <laughs> So, the Al, Al Capone brothers, Al, Ralph, and Frank Capone. Boy, his parents were not real inventive. <laughs> Let's name them Al, Ralph, well, and Frank. If you've ever thought what's in a name, think about the fact that of the Capone brothers who were all involved in the same business, Al is the one that made it famous. No one talks about Frank and Ralph. I assume that Al was short for like Alfonso. It, and was, it, was, it Italian. was. It was Alfonso, I think, wasn't it? It's either Alphonse or Alfonso. Could so be what Alphonse. was Frank and Ralph short for? Frank and Barry and Ralphinator. Ralphinator. The Ralphinator. <laughs> so it was a brothel up top, and it was a speakeasy on the bottom. And that's led You're to You're getting a, all choked up. I am. <laughs> that's led to a lot of, as you can imagine, a place owned by Ralph, Frank, and Al. Um there was a lot of murders occurred in this particular establishment. Well, I'd, I'd, really? Are I, you assuming that, or do you, do you know that for a I, fact? I think at least one of them had to be accidental death. I don't think you can attribute all of the deaths that occurred in that building to be murders. Well, okay. Granted, speakeasies, brothels, little more, you know, little more dangerous than sitting in the church pew on Sunday. Slightly. I, I will say that. I will give you that. I will definitely give you that point. But it's very cool. My favorite part, there's like five or six different ghosts they talk about in this thing. My favorite part is that they actually had sounding machine with ground-penetrating radar come, and they found under the concrete floor two human skeletons. I, what I love about that part of the story is the fact that they, they see that on the radar. It's too deep for them to really do anything with. And so they call up the local authorities, and they say, hey, we found this. And because of the age of the building and the last known you know, permit to pour concrete in the, in, in the basement, it, it's too old to really be worth anything, and it doesn't correspond to any ongoing investigations. What ongoing investigations are there still out there on the books from 1924? But, and they just said, eh, you can pull them up if you want to, but we're not really, <laughs> we're not going to tell you to. So now they just have plastic skeletons sitting on top of the area where they located I like the leave it there principle. Hey, it ain't hurting nobody. Leave it there. I do too, especially because to me, the fact that there are two sort of huddled up together makes it that I'm already trying to piece that story together in, in my mind. You know, were it two, was it two people buried alive trying to make that, you know, was it just happenstance? They threw one on top of the other. Like what, what happened here? Jay, you're the author. What would you write about? For this, for the two people found under Al Capone's whorehouse. I'd leave it to the reader's imagination. Oh, okay. You'd like to leave it wide open. 
Well, I, I like There's no right answer. Perhaps some sort of a plaque, though, as opposed to skeletons laying on the ground? I mean, could we... Perhaps we could we could jazz it up a little bit. It, it is funny, though. I remember... I want to say it's... I, I want to say it's on Pike's Peak. There is a section of the, the trail that you hike up, not the road, where you look over the side of the cliff and there's this huge boulder that when it unearthed from the side of the mountain took two men and a donkey with it and landed on them, crushed them. And the decision was made at that point to never move that boulder. That that was that was their, where they were to lay and that was going to be the indicator. And they're still there to that day. Well, there's <laughs> also a famous body on Mount Everest. There's several bodies on Mount Everest, but when I read Into Thin Air, John Krakauer, he talked about... Excellent book if you've never read oh, it. He's a great writer. Yeah, yeah. absolutely great book. And he talked about the body that's actually sitting prone as you walk up because they don't take, if you die on Mount Everest, they don't haul your body down. It was actually a news story about a year and a half ago or so uh, about the fact that he's back because for a number of years he had been covered by ice and snow and basically it had built up around him so much that, and he's a, he's a landmark on the trail. So people used to use his body as a trail marker. Uh, and, As he's finger pointing this yeah. way. <laughs> There's actually an article right now in the Tennessee Bar Journal about finding uh, unmarked graves and the process to remove them for construction, road widening. I don't know if you gentlemen would remember this. Several years ago, there was a road widening project on Hillsborough and Harding in Brentwood. There's big churches on the corner. Mm-hmm. They, they made the road wider. And Native Americans, I know, began protesting because there were Native American graves. And the whole ju- I actually went to court once about this. Uh, they were protesting. And the issue, in, the legal issue is standing. Nobody could say, that's my cousin, that's my relative, that's my great-great-grandfather. These are prehistoric graves. And I was actually thinking, and there is a process for this. It involves, there's a state anthropologist and... There was also the same controversy when they built a Lowe's in, uh, near Charlotte Pike in Nashville. Same, right on the same, side of the Cumberland River. Same thing, about. same thing. The argument from the Native American community was that you, you need to just leave it alone and don't disturb it. And what they ended up doing on the road riding project is they just paved over them. And it actually occurred to me when you're talking about the, the, the skeletons that exist under this bar in Wisconsin, they could, they could be Native Americans. It could be. They might not be murder victims, crime victims. It could just be a, I don't know how deep they are, but it just could be a primitive burial. It very well could be. The odds are greater given the history of the place and the owners that it's somebody who came to an ignominious end and maybe they were killed at the same time, maybe not. Maybe they were buried on top of each other. But there's a lot of unknowns about it. So, See, that's why it's good to have Jay as a guest on the show. You and I never would have come up with ignominious end. We never would have occurred to us to Apparently, use that word. I'm too busy saying end all. Right, exactly. <laughs> no, I, you, you know, it's funny because you bring up you know, the history of the building. But also the history of that area for Native American tribes was very, very populous. So it, it could go either way. That's, that's an interesting thought that had not yet occurred to me. Well, you know, it was one of the guys that I used that actually taught me a lot about drawing home plans. 
he was a treasure hunter in his spare time. And he had maps where he had had dowsers actually dows over the maps. And a lot of the treasures that he said were out there were Native American. They're rubies or emeralds or this, that, and the other all piled in this cave in such and such a location. I'd, I didn't realize that the Native Americans had such a wealth to be burying around. Have you well, not heard of uh, the Aztecs? Entire cities made of gold, and well, not here, not around here, <laughs> well, not in my hunting land. <laughs> well, there's uh, anyone who's grown up in the southeast, say the Natchez Trace, the Midwest where I'm from. There was a there was a mound culture. They built Indian mounds. Mm-hmm. There's actually a swimming pool and a park in my hometown called Indian Mounds. And when the Europeans took over the territory. Almost all of these mounds were dug into for arrowheads, axe heads, pipe stems, some of which are very valuable from an archaeological point of view. They're not like precious gems or precious minerals, but these are places where families and tribes buried their loved ones. And if you, this has to do with empathy. If you put yourself in the reverse situation, if, a, if another culture took over the United States and, and went into all of our veteran cemeteries, our family plots, where we've buried our ancestors, and they started digging them up to see what they were like, what they were wearing to turn their bones into fertilizer, there'd be a hue and cry. Oh, For absolutely. good reason. Yeah. Uh, the same thing with the British, with the, with the pyramids. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're basically looting them. That's what it amounts to. And that's one of the things that gives rise to this, hey, this has long been the custom is to dig into these mounds and dig into these box graves and dig up this stuff. It's, 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 act, it's, it's a form of sacrilege. Right. It, and it's, it's interesting, too, because from a, from a historical curiosity perspective, I can understand wanting to learn more about what's contained in the Great Pyramids at Giza. And I can understand also as a, a native who has some, some sanctity to these sites, wanting to see them preserved. And so what, what's interesting now is that for the past 30 years, the, the, the ratios between people who pass in this country, burial versus cremation, has flipped, with cremation being far and away the most preferred way of, of being interred. And... So it'll be interesting in future generations when we're all wiped out by the mole people who come to... There won't be anything for them to dig up to learn about. They'll think we were all still Native Americans up until right now. Yeah, somebody's writing that stuff down. <laughs> I mean, I'd say they find a book or two. Well, it's, it's funny you say that because this comes up with historians, specifically like prehistoric historians, things like the city of Alexandria, the, the library of Alexandria. We don't actually know where it was. And they're um, one of one of Egypt's primary trading partners. It was it was the akin to you know the the central hub. Several people wrote about it, but it was one of those things in the era you would never conceive of somebody not knowing where it was. So no one ever wrote it down. So we still to this day have no idea where this major landmark center of civilization was. Well, on a future show, we'll have to talk about treasure hunting. All right. Because I, I love the legends, especially around here. 
where we had Civil War, you know, there's one legend that actually on the Duck River is an entire Confederate payroll that was hidden before the Battle of Spring Hill and everybody died that knew where it was. So there's a cave full of money somewhere near the Duck River. But we'll have to talk about treasure hunting on a future show. I, right. I want to move forward tonight because this has me outraged. This has me up in arms. Actually, the Cuban sandwich was not invented in Tampa, says historian. Blasphemy. I'm telling you what, this is from the Tampa Bay Times. I don't... Who is this guy? Shecky Green? Andy Hughes. <laughs> was looking for looking for a reason to sell a book and decided to say that the Cuban sandwich was not invented in Tampa. Now, hold on a minute. You're a fan of the documentary. Have you seen Icarus? Yes. Sometimes the documentary, the best documentary, the best storytelling is done when you don't know what the story is going to be. It's highly likely that he was seeking to tell the story of the Cuban sandwich and found a, a plot twist in real life. Or it's also highly likely he wrote this in to try to sell a few more copies of his, mm. his rag. <laughs> no, but... Well, where was the Cuban sandwich invented? One, one, one wonders. Cuba, strangely enough. <laughs> Who'd have well, guessed it? Well, that's what I would have guessed. <laughs> <laughs> Who'd have guessed it? Well, there's a controversy, you know, about who invented pasta. It was the Marco Chi- Polo, right? The Chinese or the Italians? Well, Marco Polo was in China. I've seen that show on Netflix. Did he bring pasta back to Italy? He very well... well because actually the Italian diet is not super pasta rich. It's more seafood and fruits and things like that. I've been depending on the region, sure. It, well, it, but it, it, it's interesting, too, because so I, I do spend a lot of time looking into the cuisine of, of different cultures. And very nearly... Slow news day? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a foodie. I, I, am, I am a food nerd. As much as I'm a cigar nerd, I'm equally that way about food. If I'm cooking a new meal. I want to do it as authentically as possible. You know, I have some staples like the curry that I make at my house is a is a British version of curry. It's not a true Indian version of curry. Don't make that face. That's it's like one the, of my favorite foods. I despise foods. curry. That's like Tex-Mex. Yeah. Do you like Mexican food or do you like fajitas? So, <laughs> so it's interesting to see that so many cultures had a form of pasta, a form of bread, you know, there are there are certain things that kind of transcend culturalism and ge- geography, and it's really interesting. So I, I think it's far most likely that both cultures independently discovered pasta, but it was probably only recognized until they found out about the other one. Well, Andy Hughes has wrote a book. The, since I've sat here and abused him, I must give his book a plug. The Cuban Sandwich, A History in Layers which he co-authored with USF professor Barbara Cruz, who was born in Cuba. Aha! The plot thins. Uh, I detect a little bias here. And uh, so they wrote a book about it. I'm really... um, I didn't realize I did it that time. I really enjoy the Cuban sandwich. My cousin actually owns a butcher shop in Florence where he makes a Cuban sandwich, so I'm in the process... Of expanding your well, territory as the the Cuban sandwich czar? No, I'm just negotiating with the Cuban sandwich czar of Florence, Alabama, Muscle Shoals area for a for a visa. Gotcha. To come down there and eat a Cuban. I don't want to step on his toes. You, you I mean, forgot to say the word sandwich. <laughs> you did. <laughs> Eating a Cuban is actually not considered good manners. I'm paraphrasing. Jay, this show can't go on all night. These cigars uh, ain't that long. I'm here for a reason. <laughs> I'm not sure what it is, but we'll and find it. I love it. you for it. I really do. So, speaking of books, 
from Cigar Journal. The cigar from soil to soul. Second edition being released. You want to take a shot at this name? Trey? The, yeah, Didier and Hoovenagel. Didier and Hoovenagel announced the second edition of his cigar book, The Cigar from Soul to Soil to Soul. And it's 318 pages, two hardcore volumes of 11 chapters with more than 100 drawings. That's, that's a whole bunch of book. I'm a, I'm a big cigar guy. This sounds like a tough read. Yeah, I, and, and I, have, I, have ridden, uh, I have read um, Osgunner's book, and I have read um, a couple of other books. Davidoff's book. And the the one that's really frustrating me that I can't remember. This seems a bridge too far for even me. Well, the interesting thing, because I want to move on to our topic before we run out of time. The full price of the book is 150 euros for the black edition and 400 euros for the limited bamboo edition. I find that so hilarious for no other reason than the fact that everything is switching to bamboo because it's more sustainable. We're making hardwood floors out of it. We're making paper out of it. We're making all kinds of things because it's supposed to be more... Why is it more expensive than the regular version? Well, the technology is... You know, they've been printing books for how long since the Gutenberg Bible? Yeah, but it's just... I endured a 45-minute lecture on the Gutenberg Bible at Saturday's football game. I know exactly who you endured it from. (laughs) About the Germans burning four Gutenberg Bibles when they took over the, the museum there. The Nazis burning four Gutenberg Bibles, and it was like a a 30-minute thing. So I know way more about the Gutenberg Bible than I did a week ago today. I don't know that it's enhanced my life, but I'm glad to have knowledge of any kind. No knowledge is useless. So so you want to write a book. Now, Mr. Drescher, you've gone through this process twice, working on the third book. What is, so what is the number one thing someone needs to do to write a book? They need to be an avid reader. That's the number one thing. Did you find when you were starting out, especially on the first book, because part of, I don't know how much you had written before that. I know you had done some short stories and things like that, but did you find yourself getting trapped into cliches and tropes? And no, you didn't have that? No. No. It, um... My advice is, and Mark Twain would say this, uh, you need to write about something that you know about. How you know about it doesn't matter. That's why memoirs are very popular, autobiographies, because what, what, what do you know most about yourself? Um, so you need, to know, you need to know the subject matter. It doesn't matter what you're writing about. Cigars, food, could be anything. There's no boring stories. There's just boring storytellers. A good writer could write a story about anything and make it interesting and entertaining. You have to also keep in mind the reader. I was writing a book not for me, but for someone like me to enjoy. So in a novel or a thriller or an action book, they don't want to know every detail about how you raise tobacco and make cigars. They want to know what's happening, and they want to know what is going to happen next. The, you want people to keep turning the page. Mm-hmm. 
So you want to create scenario. You, you have to have conflict. You have to have good and bad people. Of course, we're all a combination of good and bad. Fall somewhere on that spectrum. And you need, you, need to, you need to have people in conflict, and they need to get in difficulty and get out of it. And you want the reader, they want to know what's going to happen to the character, whoever it is next, the bad guy, the good guy, the love affair, the love story. There's, there's a lot of fundamental basics to telling a story. It has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has to have some kind of resolution. The other thing that I learned that makes perfect sense now that I've written a couple books, you have to know how it ends first. It's not how it begins, but it's, you have to be writing with a destination in mind. So if you're writing a mystery, mysteries are extraordinarily popular. That's why there's so many of them. Who did it? How was it done? Why was it done? There's misdirection. There's clues. That's to keep the reader hooked. Mm-hmm. The beginning has to have a hook. It has to get the reader's attention, so they go to chapter two or page two. So the, right, the beginning, there's famous first lines of novels, how they begin. But you have to know where you're going or you can't get there. Right. So that's very important. It doesn't matter if you outline it, if you handwrite it, if you typewrite it, if you put it on a laptop. That's, that's up to you as a writer. But you have, a, you have to have a destination in mind so that you know where you're headed. So, Trey, you said you began writing a book. What are you going to write about? So it, I, I, I debated whether or not I was going to talk about it on the show because I actually haven't talked about this with the person I'm writing it for. Um, so I, I guess I have to get motivated and get it done by Monday when she listens to this. Um, I had the idea a couple of days ago to write a children's book. So as it's been talked about on the show, and as you guys both know, you know, there's been a lot going on in my life regarding my current child and soon-to-be children. And one of the things that I'm acutely focused on is the fact that there's going to be a 13-year age difference between the two of them. Now, my youngest sister is 16 years younger than I am. And as a result of that wide... I mean, there's the fact that she's technically my stepsister, so that plays into it. But that wide age gap has made it very difficult for us to cultivate a close relationship like I have with my siblings that I grew up with. And Obviously, that's something as a parent that's really important to me that I cultivate. And, and I know there are a lot of blended families these days, and I know there are a lot of siblings with wider age gaps as a result of that. And to my knowledge, there's not a book on the market that really extols the virtues of that relationships and, and to highlight the excitement and the benefit. Um, and then, you know, one of the things I'm struggling right now is the fact that it's pretty much going to have to be a series. You know, not that I'm trying to make money off of this or anything, but I really want to get talk about what write what you know about. There's a lot that I want to tell through these characters because you know, w- w- if you grew up in the South, you grew up thinking about the older brother being the protector and the guardian over the younger sister, and I want to tell the story that it's okay for the girl to be the protector and to be the, the strong force and the superhero. And I want it. So there's so much uh, that I want to, to tell about the, uh, about my family basically through, 
fictional, somewhat fictional characters. Who's the target? Is is your daughter the target? My daughter and my wife. So it's it's somewhat of a of a because since since she and I started our relationship some four years ago, it you know she knew I had a daughter and we have taken great care through every step of our relationship, making sure that that it's inclusionary and that it's building around the family that I already had to the, to the extent that you both saw at my wedding, we included my daughter in a sort of a family vow kind of scenario. And, and which was very well done by the way, Shane and I were both there. I remember it vividly. Thank you. And so it's, so I know that it's something that is very, very important to my wife. And I know it's something that she thinks about on a daily basis how she interacts with my daughter, how my daughter's going to interact with her once the new baby arrives and as life situations change and things like that. And so I, I, I want, so she, she's really the, the key audience here for me as kind of a validation. Uh, but I also, but I also think it's a story worth telling. And I think it fits a lot of family situations. I, I hope that there's somebody out there like me, like my wife, like my daughter, who could get a lot out of it? Well, it's not a kid's book. It's about kids, but it's not written for kids. See, that's when I sat down to start writing it. That was what I that was what I struggle with. And the the first thing that came to my mind when I had the idea was Marley and Me, and that was not a kid's book, even though it was adapted into kids' book. And I I started trying to write it as a kids' book, but as you know, as my question earlier, you know, I felt like I was falling into a lot of tropes of children's books, like, oh, the baby's scared of the world, and oh, this, you know, and, and all of these things. I was like, man, that just feels so cliche. It doesn't feel genuine yet. And I think you're right. I think I have to write it as as, as for the parents and maybe not for the kids, or at least for the young adults, maybe, maybe for the older sibling. I don't, I'm not sure yet. Well, I don't know if this is advice or just a suggestion. I would encourage you to write it just let your thoughts, feelings flow and then go back and look at it and then rewrite it. Because as often is said, the essence of writing is rewriting. But get the words on paper first, whether it's 10,000 words, 1,000 words, whatever it is, and then go back. Because I promise you that your first draft is not the final product. Right. That's almost impossible. That's very noble. It makes me it makes me feel like mine's cheap and tawdry. <laughs> well, uh, you didn't know when you brought it up that I had actually just started writing a book. I plan to write the definitive compendium of garage sales. Of garage sales. I'll either call it garage selling for fun and profit or garage hood, stealing from the rich and selling to the poor at a profit. Can't decide which is the title just yet. I'll work, I'll work it out when it gets a little closer. But, uh, you know, Glenda and I, we make, we've went on cruises, we've bought iPads, we've done everything with money that we made off of garage sales, of buying this, that, or the other at a garage sale and turning around and flipping it on Facebook. Glenda does it all the time, really enjoys it. And garage selling is a lot of fun. It's the one thing that my wife and I get to really connect on in that we both know Saturday morning we're going to get up and we're going to go garage selling and we're going to spend that time together and 
we don't look at our phones and we look at, oh, wow, look at this weird thing they had. Look at that. Because, you know, one, I'd have to write chapters on how to actually hold a garage sale properly. Right. What you paid for it don't matter be the name of that chapter. And how to write all of the things you, you know, I could do chapters on the weirdest things I've seen at garage sales. And all the guy that had the children's um, 20-gauge shotgun that had the Ku Klux Klan coin in the hilt. Oh, my gosh. That he tried to sell me. And I didn't purchase it, by the way. You should have bought That's a collector's item. Yeah, but I don't. There's certain stuff I don't like to bring that juju into my home. I was about to say, that's like Nazi paraphernalia. I'll never own any. It's just got too much badness on it. Yeah, I just don't bring that juju. Even if I knew I could make a lot of money on it, I'd still pass. Yeah, you just don't want it. Yeah. But just the amount of stuff that I've seen and done and the amount of stuff, the yard sales I've seen done properly, the amount of yard sales I've seen done poorly, the, you know, one of our guys here, he gets tons of samples. He's in the promotional item business. So he gets tons of samples at pennies on the dollar and he gets a garage full of them and he has a garage sale. That's a garage sale I want to go to. Right. Um, So there's so much in the realm of garage sales that I could write, I could very easily write a book about garage selling. That may, so I have a question. We're, we're running a little long tonight, but uh, and I know we'll continue this conversation long after we turn the mics off. The coffee table book, because that's kind of what that sounds like a little bit. When was the last time you saw a coffee table? Do you have a coffee table? Yes. So I have a coffee table, but I use it. It's one of those that raises up. We use it as a dinner table most of the time. But... I, I feel like the coffee table book is going away. We're losing it. The, the era of digital media is kind of passing it by. You know, there's upsides and downsides. One thing in this era, era of digital media, it's much easier to self-publish a book right. than it's ever been. It's probably easier now than it's ever been to produce a book. Well, the, the gentleman who I dedicated my first book to is Mark Gilroy, who's a writer and a publisher. Along the route of me doing my first book, he said there's a thousand self-published books in America that come out every day. I believe it. And he said most people are lucky to sell 100 copies. I didn't want to, I, I know a lot about finding an agent, finding a publisher, stories about the guy that wrote the, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, John Grisham. I just didn't want to go through all that. I didn't know if anybody would read my book. I just wanted to have a book I could say I wrote and hold it in my hand. So I self-published my book, and I, it's, it's done fine. The reviews are on Amazon. It's called Glasby's Fortune and Glasby's Pirates by James H. Drescher. It's a Kindle and a book book, which I prefer the latter. I don't have an Audible. I've been asked that multiple times. but We've got the recording equipment. Yeah, uh, we could have Shane read it out loud and record it. Um, <laughs> With 30,000 and alls that weren't included in the original text. My thought was, as Shane was talking about garage sailing, that... The, the the thing would it would be practical advice told with humor it's got to be humorous because it how could it not be oh it's hilarious we we get tons of laughs every week seeing stuff that people are selling yeah and just telling the story about the things and the people and the techniques would almost in and of itself be amusing oh my my bargaining techniques, my techniques for bargaining and mm-hmm. techniques for spotting stuff from the road. My wife 
can see a Bath and Body Works bottle six yard sales down the road. <laughs> and it's just, um, it's a lot of fun. It's exciting. It's, it's, and it's something that costs you nothing. I may go four weeks and not buy a single thing at a yard sale and have a blast the whole time I'm going and doing it. It is modern America's way of treasure hunting. It is treasure oh, hunting. for sure. That's what it is. Yeah, and I do limit myself to one guitar a year because uh, we live in Nashville. Everybody's selling a guitar. Right. And the great thing about cell phones is I can pick up a guitar and type in the serial number to an app, and it'll tell me where the guitar was built, estimate what it's worth, you know, everything like that. Well, there's a famous story that, excuse me for interrupting, There's because I just talked about it with a guy a few moments ago. There's a famous uh, example of Antiques Roadshow where a guy bought a Navajo Chief's blanket at a garage sale for $25. And it was initially praised for half a million dollars, and it's doubled in value since then, because they're not making them anymore. Right. It's one of the first examples of Navajo weaving. I know what he's talking about. So you there's a, there's a name for it, but there's a... There's a handful of printed the Declaration of Independence. And there's a story about somebody that found one on the back of something in a frame. A piece of art, yeah. It's not, it's not handwritten. I mean, that's in the U.S. archives. You know, it's in the museum in Washington, D.C. on the mall. But only so many of these were printed. And if you can find one, it's extraordinarily valuable. And there's probably one out there somewhere in somebody's attic or somebody's basement that you never know. You never know what you're going to find at a garage sale. That's part of the thrill. Oh, it is. You never, when you get up in the morning, you never know if you're going to find that. And sometimes you find a treasure that's worth nothing to anybody but you. Correct. That's what makes it a treasure. Yeah, some of my favorite things are things that are really offbeat that I found at a yard sale. Mm-hmm. And also, I think, that, I think there's a good book to be had there. I don't know if anyone would buy it, but I think it would be a lot of fun to write it. Yeah. That, that, that's one other piece of advice. If you write a book to make money, you won't. Right. You have to write a good story that is satisfying, complete, that stands on its own. And whether it sells or not is not really relevant to how good it is. You just have to do the best you can. But if you, if you go into it with a mercenary attitude, I, th- I think you're shooting yourself in the foot before you write the first word. Well, you know, one of the coolest things I found at yard sales... I actually found the pool table that was in the movie Tombstone. Really? A man had it in his basement. He had the authentic- certificates of authenticity and everything. And, it, and you can look at the movie and look at this pool table and see this is the pool table that was in the movie Tombstone. How much was he selling it for? He wanted eleven. I think I could have. He wanted eleven thousand. I think I could have got it for eight. I feel like I feel like that would have been a worthwhile investment. If you'd had somewhere to put it. Well, the problem of a pool table is handling. Right, exactly. You know, you got to get it out of his place. You got to get it into your place. You got to get it in. You know, if I had a 6,000 square foot house of a big basement that I wanted to put it in. You got to get it to Las Vegas and put it in front of the Pawn Stars guys. Like, it's just, it's a big thing. Oh, yeah. It's just one thing after another. So, and that's a whole chapter of the book. The size of the item really matters. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, we've we've made a fortune off of strollers. Yeah. You know, buying and selling strollers. And uh, Glenda elbowed some poor old lady out of the way of a um, Bob stroller the other day. <laughs> so, just a, it's a lot of fun. But I think, do you think everybody has a book in them? No. No, I don't either. No. See, I think they do. I think everybody has a book. You know, the gentleman that just come in here that was on the PGA Tour for many years, he's got a book in him. 
Well, lots of people have good stories, but actually putting putting it in words that people would read and enjoy, that's a tall order. One of the things I learned from going to writer seminars, which I did for years, is that a lot, a lot of people say, oh, you ought to write a book. Uh, you know, if you're a lawyer, you've had some wild experience, you've been in combat, you've had some kind of exciting experience, not everybody's capable of doing it. The thing is, we often read books that are very well written, and, and we're lured into the notion that, well, I could do this, I could do this. It's very difficult. It's not easy. What's the perfect length for a book? If you had to put a page number on it. There's no perfect length because it depends on the story. And then labels are dangerous. There's short stories. There's novelettes. There's a lot of science fiction novelettes, like L.P. Lovecraft. His books aren't very long. Then there's Philip K. Dick was the king of the short story. There's there's books that are too long. Moby Dick. I'm not a fan of the short story. I love short stories. Well, if too. I get a good short story, I want more, and I can't have it. My Except first, my first is... book started out as a short story. That's how it began, and then I realized I could expand it, turn it into a novel, and I did. So, but so I'm curious about that because you have said many times, if you can't explain your position in 20 words or less, then you don't know your position you well. Sound enough. like a trial no. lawyer when you say that. If you can't ask your question in 25 but words or less, you, you've said it about uh, about stating a position or telling a story. You've said it something similar about that before. Yeah, when I get on Facebook and I see somebody that's written, you know, half Three a novel. Pages. I just skip. I don't care what yeah. their post is about. I'm skipping it. Well, but now, if sh- somebody could tell you a riveting story in four pages, I, I feel like that shows. I mean, if, for all of the warts that Twitter has, one of the things that I think it has done well for its user base is it has retaught the concept of editing. You know, especially when it was only 140 characters. Now it's 280. But uh, there were many times when you'd go to put something on Twitter and realize that you could only get half of your thought out in the character limits. You'd have to edit and you'd have to do... And I think there's a lot to be said with taking a... You know, it's, it's the Japanese haiku. Taking an extremely complex idea and boiling it down to 11 syllables. There's an, there's an enormous number of great horror short stories. As I was thinking about my first book, it's really, it's a series of short stories that's turned into a novel. Because there's this, then this happens, then this happens. I I, I took great pains to to label my chapters. Because it's not chapter one, chapter two, it's, there's a name for each one. And it's kind of like, whether the book is 12 chapters or 120, each chapter, it's like a paragraph. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So it advances the story, and they're all linked. But writing a short story is a different animal than writing a novel. They're just different. And there's some really brilliant short stories that wouldn't, don't warrant novel treatment. The average novel is probably about 300 pages. Yeah, for me, about 250 pages now, the greatest compliment I can pay to a book is kind of like the greatest compliment we pay to a cigar. I wish it was a little longer. You know, and your books were that way. I always wished your books had another 40, 50 pages. Well, that's very kind of you. Uh, One of the great coincidences in my writing life was after I had actually had the second book printed, it is exactly 
the same length as the first book. It's just, it's 354 pages. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's 110,000 words. The average mystery is about 80 to 100,000. And then of course there's great long books, there's great short stories, there's great in between. It really doesn't matter as long as it's tightly woven. It's like that chief's blanket. If it's made properly and told right. One of the things that I've seen is that, like the, the writer Michael Connolly, who writes police procedurals, he was a journalist. So he learned to write. He always wanted to be a novelist, but he started out his career writing crime. crime. He was a reporter in Miami, a lot of crime. It was during the drug era. And then he was a reporter in Los Angeles. So he knew all about police. He knew all about the prosecutors. He knew all about the lawyers. So then when he started writing uh, I, I'm trying to remember the name of his first book, but he's, he's become very successful. But the other thing about writing is it's like running. And Trey, I know you've done triathlons and that sort of thing. The way you become a runner or swimmer or biker is you bike, you run, you swim. If you're going to be a writer, you write. you're not going to sit down and write a book. You have to just start writing. And that's what I said earlier. Just write your story and then rewrite it. Yeah. And you get better by the doing of it. Uh, because it's like if you exercise a muscle, it gets stronger. If you use your mind and your, and your body to be creative, I suspect that oftentimes you don't become a master portrait painter like one of the customers that comes in here who is. He is one of the greatest living portrait painters on the planet. He didn't start out that way, but he, you get better and better at what you do because you hone your craft. You know, the, the To Kill a Mockingbird is one of the unique books because it's very often said that it's a person's favorite book because it's kind of the perfect book. Yeah. The, there, there was great pressure on her to write another book, but I think one of the reasons she didn't is because she was never going to top To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. How many people get an American classic their first shot? That, that, that's like winning the lottery. Exactly. Uh, writing is work. It's kind of blue-collar work. And one of the things that's so impressive about someone like Michael Connolly or Stephen King, he gets up, Stephen King gets up in the morning and he writes all day, and then he does it again. It's, it's said that the only day he takes off is Christmas Day and his birthday. And if you look at his body of work, it's, it, it would go from here to the edge of the parking lot. It's incredible. But that's... And he's obviously a multimillionaire. He doesn't need the money. He needs to write. And if you're really going to be a writer, you got to write. You got to run. You got to swim. You got to bike. If you're going to be a writer, you got to just start writing. And, and it's not going to be the best thing that was ever written. That's fantastical. That's delusional. But you'll find that in the process, you start learning. Well, let's wrap it up. We're running a little long tonight, but it's good conversation, it good is. guest. Jay, thank you for coming and joining thank us Thank you for tonight. having me. I've always enjoyed it. Appreciate it. As have we. So rank your cigar tray. I'm going to give that a five and a half because it's a six that you can't get. You know, I'm in the same spot. I was thinking about this cigar. If I could go in the humidor and pick up a wolf anytime I wanted it, it would be a six and a half, six and three quarter all day, but I've got to knock it to a six because they're so hard to acquire. Yeah. 
I'm having to penalize it a little for the, the amount of trouble it is to acquire one. What do you think of the Kruger? Uh, it's an enjoyable cigar. I give it a five and a half. There we go. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening this week. Until next week, have a great cigar and think well of us. Happy